0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about philosophy. What's the value of it? What's the role of it? How should we think about it? Within higher education, the humanities are kind of in a precarious position at the moment, and perhaps philosophy most of all. And so joining me today to talk about the role and value of philosophy, we have Two Cities team member Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber?
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining Amber and I, we have a special guest today. We have Dr. J. Aaron Simmons, who is professor of philosophy at Furman University. He did his PhD at Vanderbilt, and he's an expert in philosophy of religion, and he's president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having
2: me. Really exciting to be with you.
0: So what is the value of philosophy? I mean, is, it, is there something more to it than just abstract, theoretical, kind of metaphysical musings? Does it have any real-life concrete value for us today?
2: It's a really good question. Um, I think it's important to be clear about what we mean when we say it in that question. Does it have mm. the, the you know, practical value for us? Because philosophy as a professional discourse is as it should be something that professionals do with professionals in an academic setting mm-hmm. and i think that in the same way that you know when we say well what practical value does you know the discipline of sociology or neuroscience have for us today well what's going on in the universities is always going to be about three steps up from mm-hmm. where the practical value is going to be seen mm-hmm. and so i don't think philosophy as a profession is in any different situation than any of those other fields but for some reason we seem to think that philosophy then when put into practice or when applied to human existence somehow is less obviously viewed as practical so we can make sense of how neuroscientists you know help us then develop drugs that help us with you know particular types of of illness say or we can talk about how sociologists are helping us think through urban planning and the nature of how we design cities. But philosophy, for some reason, seems to be much harder. And this is why it gets, I think, a bad rap. And the way I tend to tell my students is that when they come into my philosophy courses, they're getting the most practical course that they will ever take. And of Mm -hmm. course, they look at me incredulously, and they don't believe me. And what I tell them is, Look, whatever job you have, whatever career you end up pursuing, whatever life situation you find yourself in at 42 or 45, whatever it is, you will always, every single day, be amidst the human condition. Mm-hmm. You will be in a space where you're having to deal with the fact that mortality continues to be real. Joy and suffering are always in a complicated relationship to each other, relationships are hard, disappointment happens more frequently than we would like. And so philosophy is the very careful analysis um, that invites us to think really well about mm. what it means to be the kind of being we are. And, mm. and we can make that abstract and technical like professors do, or we can make it as, you know, on the ground and, and full of traction as we want. I think the pandemic, in fact, Mm. has been a strangely invitational space for seeing Mm. philosophy as practical Mm. because we are now having to deal with things like solitude and Mm. we're having to wrestle with how relationships work when they are not as present as we would like and disappointment and how do we navigate the future and what what role does expectation play and how do we understand the relation of hope to despair? Mm. That's all philosophy 101. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's also all of our daily lives right now. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the cacophony of uh, the speed of normalcy and and the the way that the ordinary you know humming along of the business world when the economy is doing what it is that most people think it should be doing allows us to kind of become deaf to those actual embodied phenomena that mm-hmm. confront all of us. so yeah, philosophy mm. is the most practical thing we can do because whatever we face, wherever we are, we're going to have to figure out how to live on purpose and find ways to take deep breaths while doing it.
0: I really like that vision of what philosophy is in terms of it being kind of eminently practical and the way you connected it back to the pandemic, I think, is uh, really interesting and highlights a lot of the very kind of real experiences that we're having and how there are philosophical voices and philosophical uh, issues that can be directly related to some of this. And in light of that issue with the pandemic, I'm, I'm curious to also kind of bring into this conversation some recent trends, like with a particular prominent university which decided to actually gut its philosophy department i'm yeah. curious i'm curious what we think that that sort of tells us about you know higher education's vision of the value of philosophy or maybe broader cultures because there's kind of a consumeristic nature to some educational interests right what does this sort of reflect what sort of reality do you think this reflects this decision to gut a philosophy department for example
2: yeah, well, I mean, I think it's part of a broader cultural trend. Uh, mm. When you know states face budget cuts, the the first thing to go in public education are arts programs and, mm. and humanities, you know, courses. We seem to have allowed the STEM, uh, not just the disciplines, but what I call the STEM logic, to become a foundational altar at which we uh, begin to pray uh, when it comes to education and. I think this is deeply problematic, uh, not because I have any animosity towards science or want to foster any kind of division between the sciences and the humanities. I, in fact, want to minimize that division. But the way we minimize it is by challenging this logic that says, here are the disciplines that are practical to the quote unquote real world. And then here are these other things like Mm religious studies and philosophy and English literature and modern languages that somehow are disconnected from that so-called real world, I I think this is actually an abdication of higher education at Mm. its core. Mm. And this, I think, is bigger than any one university. I think this is actually a global cultural shift that we should all resist. And in fact, the sciences should be just as worried about this as the humanists. Mm. So maybe the way to think about it is like this for really the history of the university system up to about 40, 50 years ago, the role of the university was to be a culture creator. Mm. It existed. The Academy existed in order to invite the people in power to be anchored in a vision of human flourishing debates about conceptions of justice, understandings of how beauty is essential to you know, the human good. All of these ideas were what the university was about. And roughly 40, 50 years ago, you know, after World War II, what started happening was a shift in what we expected universities to do. So instead of looking at them as culture creators, we now looked at them as culture reflectors. Hmm. And so instead of faculty being the voice of the university to whom we turned in times of crisis, we now have basically business managers and CEOs running universities and Hmm. doing everything they can to try to minimize faculty voices because faculty seem not to get it where the it is this real world, you know, adult mature stuff about the way revenue works and mm-hmm. how money is the only question that we've got to answer. And without wanting to be naive about that, right? It's important. We have mm-hmm. jobs because they're able to pay us and they're able to pay us because they're taking in revenue. That, that's just part of the capitalistic space in which we exist mm-hmm. for better or worse. But until we start genuinely challenging the logic on the basis of which universities understand their task as not being about inviting people to live lives of significance where they discover meaning and they pursue beauty, truth, and goodness. But instead, we've become employee factories, right? Mm. And what it is that university, administrat- uh, university administrators tend to do is see not only the students as consumers and so therefore we have to have this consumer model Mm -hmm. of education Mm -hmm. which is a disaster on its face Mm -hmm. because (laughs) <laughs> who, who are the least likely to know what their education should look like? Mm-hmm. Those who haven't yet received it. Right. right. So it's nonsense to ask a 17-year-old what it is that college should look like and then try to model what you're offering on that term. What right. you've got to do is educate the culture mm-hmm. so that you're creating the desires in the right sorts of ways mm-hmm. of those 17-year-olds who now are seeking you out because you've helped shape what it is that they actually want. But on the other side, well, who is it that we turn to as consultants to help us think about how to become consumer centric in this way? We turn to the business world. We turn to corporations. And so we're basically getting a corporate logic anchored in a conception of real world STEM practicality, trying to model all of this for 17 year olds who in fact don't know yet reasonably what they should want from college. So it's not a surprise, given that structure, that we have failed to continue to lead in creating the real world. And now we're basically just taking a back seat and producing students who can navigate the real world without ever being a disruptive challenge to it. And mm. I think that is genuinely a failure of higher education.
1: Yeah, Erin, one of the things that I love about your work is I think it really disrupts a, a binary that we see a lot within even the field of philosophy and how philosophy, different ways that it maybe legitimizes itself, even in higher education. So for example, you you can pitch philosophy and you can practice philosophy as this thing that's going to give you analytical skills that are going to help you then get a job, right? So it's Mm -hmm. a way of saying, hey, no, I can be that practical thing too, right? Or you can pitch philosophy as, hey, you know, people have existential angst and philosophy is almost this therapeutic enterprise that helps them think through things so that maybe they'll, you know, be in the therapist's office a little bit less and can be more productive in their lives, (laughs) right? So, And I've seen philosophy programs and departments reflect those two different approaches kind of as a way of surviving in the environment that, you know, we find ourselves right now you, however, have been doing something in these uh, YouTube channels and Facebook videos that you've done since start the COVID crisis started called Philosophy from Where We Find Ourselves, yeah. which is very interesting to me because it kind of brings together the, on one side, the therapeutic existential questions. And then on the other side, maybe even those deeper meaning questions about like, the structures of reality and, you know, how do we know the world and things like that. And and they, you bring them together. I wonder if you can explain just methodologically, like what are you doing there and, and uh, what, what are you saying by, by your practice and how you're doing philosophy?
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And I think the options that you're mapping out are largely correct. Um, I, I think, but it's interesting the way, the way that we've been, Approach both of these strategies, right? They are both instrumental. One is, hey, here's how you're able to move forward and get into law school. Here's how you're able to have, and we can go into the discourse that we've all been trained to do, right? Philosophy is an excellent degree for anybody, regardless of their job prospects, because it gives us transferable skills that are wonderful and adaptable to a highly complex global marketplace. And the jobs of tomorrow are not even, in fact, yet are on, on the table. So philosophy, right? we, we can give the spiel and parents get all excited and they listen to us. The problem, of course, with that strategy is it makes it look like thinking well, living well, being reflective, being intentional only matters insofar as it's able to provide some sort of economic payoff, hmm. right? That success is the goal. And I think that's what philosophy, since you know, at least Socrates, and we could go in other even cultural traditions, I mean, Confucius and Socrates both are radically challenging. The idea that success relative to external uh, power and wealth is the goal of a meaningful existence. So when we try to sell philosophy that way, I haven't got a problem with it as, hey, here's some other data. Right. Because it's all true. It does do these things. It does, in fact, lead to, you know, really impressive, uh, you know, high median incomes relative to middle life. I mean, it, it is adaptable. It does create, you know, interesting relationships to ambiguity and nuance. I think it's a wonderful, practical, instrumental job prep kind of program. The problem is, if we frame it that way, we are no longer committed to what I take philosophy fundamentally to be about. So maybe the therapeutic option does better. Well, the problem there is we start by saying life is going to be so difficult. We've got to have some sort of therapeutic way to be able to navigate it. And in the same way, it's kind of, well, why would we want to do that? So that we can still, still continue to be productive human beings who navigate the social space in broadly successful ways. Now, look, I'm all in for helping my students be successful. I think that should be something we're all invested in. And, and universities should be spending resources and time and energy helping students think about how do you transfer a, a process of becoming, self making, into a lifetime of also career oriented energy uh, exertion. That, that seems like something we should be good at. However, the way I look at it, and this is what my YouTube channel uh, is trying to do is simply, it's also, I mean, I should say my my YouTube channel is basically like my intro philosophy course, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. just chopped up into four minute segments every day. I mean, this is the way I teach. This is the way ultimately I approach my writing, my research, everything is, philosophy is instrumentally valuable without doubt. But There's something that matters about human existence and human society and the pursuit of beauty, truth, and goodness that is not about instrumental outcome, but is the anchor, the frame, the network, the the very skeletal structure of what existence is. So what I'm trying to invite my students to recognize is, look, the goal is not to somehow minimize the human condition. It's, it's being able to operate and flex and groove and maybe even dance internal to it. And that will happen relative to jobs. That will happen relative to despair. But it's also going to happen just because, hey, this is who we are. So the way I approach philosophy is a combination of these two strategies, but by trying to challenge the idea that instrumental value is the only value in play.
1: Mm -hmm. It sounds a lot like Michel Henry, which is unsurprising to me, Mm -hmm. given um, that he's a new phenomenologist and you have a lot of expertise in new phenomenology. And just thinking about how he says in his work, barbarism, he he critiques the scientific worldview, which Mm -hmm. promotes this idea of technology, that the world is this repository of objects that are largely disconnected and we can slice and dice them and move them around in different ways. Basically, we're here to like cut up the world and make it achieve the ends that we want, as opposed to being embedded within our world. And the latter means having a a, a way of living that is fundamentally integrated, that uh, is connected, that forms bonds, that there's these profound currents of meaning that are holding everything together. And that's not to say that, science shouldn't be done and it's this corroding, horrible thing and we're pitting right. the humanities against the sciences, but rather that science should emerge as a way for the reality in which we dwell to, to unfold itself and to for ways for us to develop our world as opposed right. to just creating these instruments that we then use to achieve certain ends (laughs) that science kind of dictates. So it's not pitting science and the arts against one another, but rather understanding them in an integrated way that are both rooted in this notion of the good life of Mm -hmm. life itself.
2: That's right. Yeah. I mean, like right now, (laughs) I have absolutely no problem saying the world (laughs) Is is certainly pitting its hope on scientists, not on philosophers, to solve the crisis of the pandemic. That <laughs> that doesn't threaten me a bit, right? We need a freaking vaccine, and we need <laughs> one soon. And I genuinely worry that if we don't get one soon, that the toll in human life and and human suffering is so high hmm. that you know it'll it'll take a lot of philosophers and a lot of therapists and a lot of uh, you know, just, just genuine human relationships to even manage to get through this. So there is no threat to science when we say we've got to challenge this instrumental STEM logic. In, in many ways, we might say that only when scientists and, and science as a discourse begins to interrogate some of its own assumptions and its own privilege, its own social status, we might do better To actually do the kind of science work that we need. Mm. So for example, it's not surprising to me that we've got lots of public leadership questioning science and and refusing to uh, listen to the advice of scientists because what it was that was undergirding the STEM STEM logic was objectivity, neutrality, this, this narrative of We are just mechanics doing mechanistic things and manipulating, you know, technology in order to produce, ooh, a new toy that lets us live longer, or here's Mm. a new app that lets us do something interesting. But because scientists actually were, I think, complicit in that narrative of objectivity, that narrative of neutrality, instead of saying, no, as scientists, we are deeply invested in particular types of work, and particular types of research, because we have interests in and passions for and excited human relationships with others. That's in fact, why we need science to do the sort of work that it does. Hmm. So I, I guess my thought here is, The way we break down the differences between the two cultures, as C.P. Snow talked about, of the arts, humanities on one side and science on the other, the way we break it down is not expecting philosophy to look more like chemistry, but actually making sure that our chemists are better grounded in philosophy. Hmm. That that lets them be better chemists because they can own what it is that's occurring in their discourse as a socially constructed practice with a history. Hmm. And when we start owning this and educating the public about this, then it's easier for us to stand up to those who would look ignorant of science or simply think that their whim or that their intuition is somehow better than the data driven results that we have from, you know, double blind peer reviewed studies. Like people need to understand why science works the way it does. Mm. And when we understand it, it lets us better get why philosophy and history and religious studies work the way they do. Mm. So that I think is a real failure of us as a society. But, I think again, it's grounded in a logic shift where the universities were about creating opportunities for human flourishing in the world. And now they seem to be more about uh, creating job prospects for people to flourish where flourishing only means continuing to have a job. And I, I just think that this is such um what? It's just narrow. It, it's self protective. It's reinforcing power structures rather than challenging them. You know, what, the big thing um, that I think right now, without being able to work this out, the big thing that really frustrates me right now is this dichotomy that we're working with, where the economy or human life. Well, the reason we have that dichotomy is because we've allowed a particular conception of capitalism mm. to be taken as naturalistic. Like we, we act as if it's some essence for human social life. Mm. Well, that's just false. We could do this differently. We could have a structure where we don't reward people for contributing to the GDP by giving them retirement benefits and health care. But in fact, we simply say, hey, you contribute to social functioning because that's what we expect of you as a member of the community where you find yourself. Mm. where we have social pressure to be productive, not so you can pay your rent, but so that we can actually recognize the value in creation and innovation. So Mm. I I just fundamentally reject the dichotomy Mm. that says capitalism is obvious and necessary. No, it's it's a contingent result of decisions that have been made by a very particular historical set of the empowered
1: you know that dichotomy you mentioned? I I think it's absolutely right because it, and it has implications like for example, I think it it tears us apart as human beings. Like what does it even mean to be a human being cuz it it splits us in half. We mm-hmm. kind of have this objective side of us that's engaged in the marketplace and that is doing our jobs and that's production oriented and you know all those things. But then you have this subjective t- side that has been removed from the objective side you know and um it's put in a closet somewhere and so then you have to kind of deal with your subjective side like deal with your existential angst so that you can then return to your productive side and and it pits those two things against one another whereas a vision for human flourishing is one where those two things aren't divorced from one another, but are are integrated in a profoundly human way. That innovation, that creation, that advancement, all of those kinds of things, those stem from what it means to be human. Those are inspired and propelled by that, right? It's not like you need to remove the humanness in order to achieve progress. It it should yeah. be the other way.
2: And I think this is is such a smart point because One of the problems we now find ourselves in, at least in a very particular American context, is we also have, I think, conceptions of Christianity that are very socially empowered. And what they have done is basically narrated, and this is much older than just the last 40, 50 years, but they've narrated salvation as a kind of salvation from the human condition. (laughs) So we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're supposed to somehow turn to the divine in order to be less human. Mm -hmm. And I I just think that, man, even as a Christian, I identify as a Pentecostal Christian, and I think this is just such a devastatingly bad conception of even the Christian narrative, Mm -hmm. which is a narrative of the the God of the universe, in fact, becoming humbled and serving as Mm -hmm. human, right? Taking Mm -hmm. on flesh. So I don't mean that to be super confessional. I mean it philosophically, right? That Mm -hmm. whether or not you think that's true, we've got a profound need to challenge the frameworks by which our social powers function. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we can do this simply as philosophers by saying, hey, let's think about what is the human. That's one of those questions. And, you know, Amber, you and I both know this, that. You know, it, it's the kind of question you, you don't want to ask on a first date, right? Like, you know, <laughs> Hey, where, where did you grow up? What's your conception of the human?
1: <laughs> Definitely <laughs> made that mistake before. <laughs> not, <Just kidding.
2: laughs> not a good move. And, and, and so why is it that it's so bad? Because it's one of those questions where we're like, oh, well, now we've checked out from the practical real world. Mm. And it's like, no, mm. well, who is it you thought was engaging in that real world? Right. I mean, it's humans. So the problem is it's not that we don't have these conversations. That's a problem of its own. The problem is we're not even able to recognize that we're operating with tacit answers to those questions that are going unacknowledged and unchallenged. Hmm. And so that's where I think our religious spaces, our social spaces, these have to be Uh, moments where we are critical precisely, we care about them, not because we're antagonistic against them, right? So I, I absolutely think the way you described that is exactly right.
1: Well, and it's kind of like what Kierkegaard talks about or Clemicus talks about how you do all of these theoretical abstractions, but you forget that it is an existing person who is doing those theoretical abstractions. Mm, So there's an irony there. Well, Um, this is the scientist,
2: right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Michel Henry and Barbarism, which you just mentioned, he has this great moment where he talks about the scientist who's in the middle of her lab and doing this work. And then she has to like stop and go down the stairs to get something from a different room. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And the idea is, well, because she's still body and, and mm. navigating the world with desire and, and frustration. And she's either got groceries at home or she doesn't, and they have to stop and get them. And now if she has to stop and get them, well, will shoot. Does she have a mask in the car? And well, what kind mm. of risk is she willing to tolerate in order to get them? And you know, like th- this is, where we are, to act like that somehow we put on lab coats and stop being humans and become just better robots hmm. is fundamentally to miss what it is that we are and why we do what we do. I tell my students all the time, be people that are significant. And that's what makes them capable of then having jobs that are important. Hmm. Not you are significant because you've been made important by your job. Yes, and yeah. that inversion is fundamentally not what university admissions programs are teaching. It's not what we're telling them at business fairs. It's not what we're telling them in church, right? Mm. A- a- on all these levels.
1: Yeah. I want to ask a question that just kind of flesh this out a little bit more, um, but maybe a bit on the lighter side. I know that two of your hobbies are trout fishing and playing the drums.
3: This is and,
1: true. <laughs> if you know Aaron, you know, those two things are true. Uh-huh. So how do these activities help you do philosophy, especially in the vein that we've been talking about here?
2: I love this question. And here's why. I was just yesterday having a conversation with Tom Morris, who used to be a philosopher at Notre Dame. Now he's a New York Times bestselling author and corporate uh, business consultant. But yet what he does is philosophy for businesses, which I find mm-hmm. fundamentally a crucial, crucial space to be in. Yeah, the way I look at it is, well, look, if college administrators aren't going to listen to faculty, then the faculty should go talk to and be in front of CEOs because that's who college administrators are talking to, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I love what he's doing, but Tom and I were talking and he plays guitar, I play drums. And as we were chatting, you know, I said, Tom, look, the reason I do what I do and why I do it the way I do it, I think is fundamentally anchored in two realities that I am a drummer, and in particular, that my drumming was honed as a skill and an art, a craft, in Pentecostal worship services, <laughs> right? Mm. which is important. And then secondly, that I got into philosophy. I got into academics in general. Like I, I went to grad school to be able to fish in the summers. So, those are the two things that motivated me, right? And in fact, I went to Florida State University for my uh, first master's degree, singularly to watch football. And while I was there, I got a degree along the way. I mean, when when we get our priorities straight in these ways, what happens is philosophy is never the abstract discourse that we have to somehow make applicable to Mm -hmm. human existence. Philosophy is the on-purpose living where we are and doing it well. You Mm -hmm. know, it's kind of like LL Cool J used to say, (laughs) you know, doing it and doing it and doing it well. Like that, it (laughs) turns out, is the most philosophical song there is, right? It's are you doing life well? Like that's Mm -hmm. how we should greet each other. You know, are you doing life well? Mm -hmm. And being able to do life well has very little to do. With whether we can quote Heidegger in German and we can articulate the distinction between das on the one hand and you know the the fourfold on the other, like <laughs> I, I geek out on that stuff because that's what I do as a professional.
1: Those are also but, not good first date topics, by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, it turns out, yes, very very bad. Descartes <laughs> the worst though, because <laughs> as soon as you sit down and start saying. Look, I'm not even sure you're real. Yeah, there, there is <laughs> there's no good uh, next step. There is no second date, right? Uh, um, but the reason that trout fishing and philosophy and drumming and philosophy matter to me is because they are fundamentally activities where meaning is made in the context mm-hmm. of embodied action. Mm-hmm. So when I play drums... It's not just that I'm learning to improvise and be spontaneous and roll off what other musicians are giving me. But my goodness, that looks an awful lot like the flow of philosophical conversation if you start learning the history of philosophy. Mm -hmm. But it's also that I'm learning, huh, I'm in fact the anchor of what everything else is doing. And Mm -hmm. the movement of the bodies, even in the congregation, are happening in no small part because my kick and snare are occurring in particular ways. Hmm. And so when you start realizing, ah, so what is the kick and snare that makes us start, you know, and then that rolling bass, right? No, 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 no. And then immediately, you know, we start clapping. And so what is that more broadly related to human existence as such? What Hmm. is it? that creates for us the, the, the backbeat
3: Mm -hmm.
2: of existence. And I think that philosophy is simply the patient interrogation of that question. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And trout fishing, my goodness, what is trout fishing? It is a, a long and patient process of resting actively. (laughs) Right. When you go trout fishing in particular, I mean, I, I will go fishing deep sea and bass fishing is all great, too. But trout fishing in particular, you're in the middle of the river and you do most of the day you stand there and you cast and you don't catch things. But while standing there, you're also actively interpreting a text. Which way is the water running around that rock? Hmm. What kinds of flies are being you know, seen on the surface of the water? How is it that I can see this riffle of water on the top of the surface actually reflecting something that I can now infer and entail about the substructure of the water that I can't even see? Like mm. I'm out there just relaxing and yet interpreting in unbelievably embodied ways. Mm. That's philosophy. So it's no wonder I'm a phenomenologist. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's no wonder I'm an existentialist because that just is what we do when we play drums at the end of a Pentecostal worship service. And it just is what we do when we stand in the middle of the water mm. and try to get that you know rooster tail to hit exactly the right spot to be able to engage and then navigate those waters. That, that's life. And, wow. and that's why I love uh, David Foster Wallace, that this is water speed. Mm,
0: yes, yes.
2: Because I start every philosophy class with that text and then oh. I end every philosophy class with that text. Mm. And I do this because I want them to know, whatever you do, wherever you are, you are in a text. You are yes. navigating embodied life you are mm. interpreting what it is that's being handed to you and you're improvising in response to input. So mm. let's freaking be good. I mean, if you <laughs> hate the game you're playing, don't play that gig anymore. Shift it up. I mean, if you find mm. yourself in a Southern gospel band and you really want to <laughs> be over here playing death metal, like, <laughs> you have to actively walk out of that club and go somewhere else. Mm. So that's that creation and innovation that I, for some reason, think we have abdicated to a corporate model rather than actually dictating no this is an existential model and then corporate life is one mode in which you can live it out right and i think that's entirely fine
1: Mm. yeah that's right and i I think it's it's a way of training you hermeneutically like you were saying that you then apply in other ways but it, it shapes you to be a person who is responsive to the world, right? Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. just simply projecting onto the world or slicing it in ways that are fitting for the project that you have in mind, but there, there are ways that you are attending to the world, that you're alert to the world and that you're responsible for the world and you're, you're responsive to the world. That's a Mm -hmm. a very embedded way of being Mm -hmm. um, that is so rich in meaning. That's very much lost when we kind of Mm -hmm. gaze at the world from our own little perches. Oh, and
2: we're, we're right now, my goodness, we're, we're having debates, like actual debates and people, good grief. Somebody lost his life recently because of this, because we're simply saying, Hey, Put on a t-shirt over your face Hmm. when you walk in a grocery store. You know why? Because it might save somebody's life. And yet we've got, in my opinion, egoistic libertarians running around saying we're violating their liberty Hmm. by simply expecting that they not be so self-protective that they have an absolute active disregard for the Mm -hmm. flourishing of another. Mm -hmm. Come on. Like Mm -hmm. that should be a non-starter socially. And mm-hmm. yet, what do we do? We keep walking around having to act like, oh, well, but it's a reasonable view. And I know, well, we've got it's complicated. No, get better at philosophy. Right. Recognize that some views are simply incoherently dead on arrival, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead, let's encourage each other to think better. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we think. Oh, well, you know, we certainly don't want to elect that philosopher to Congress, because all they'll do is sit up there and talk about, you know, Kierkegaard. Hmm. Well, what (laughs) they might do is actually be able to say, hey, if you had read some Kierkegaard, then you would also recognize that standing alone before God requires that you recognize you are also standing in front of Sarah and in front of Isaac and having to justify yourself so that what you think God has told you isn't something you can get away with saying without having to navigate it in social ways because your responsibility Mm. is bigger than that. Right,
3: Mm.
1: And that just perfectly transitions me to another question that I'm dying to ask you. Since you're the president of the Kierkegaard Society, and a phenomenal Kierkegaard scholar yourself, what is the thing that you've learned most from Kierkegaard or, or maybe the thing that just sticks with you the most that or sticks on you the most that you just keep coming back to and kind of reasoning from that influences the way that you do philosophy and life in this very intertwined way?
2: Here's my answer. It's actually an easy answer for me. Um, now I have a much more elaborate answer that we can talk about you know, off camera and in print. But my simple answer is this, Kierkegaard shows me what it looks like to understand faithfulness as a way of life, Mm -hmm. not simply as a set of propositions that are held within religious institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, why that matters is because, uh, for example, in the TEDx talk I gave a few years ago, it's simply called the failure of success. It's available on YouTube. And what I say there is, look, success is good. Like we should be pragmatic and we should be logistically interested. Again, if you want to play for a death metal man, you're not going to be successful if you keep playing for a Southern, southern gospel group. So success has to be a logistical question that we try to undertake in intentional ways. But if success is the goal of your life, whether that be be partner at the law firm, get your PhD, have a million dollars in the bank, right? Whatever the success point is, win an Olympic gold. I mean, it could be a lot of different things. The problem with all of that is you might actually pull it off and then you've got to figure out how to live the next 50 years. So I tell my students all the time, like as, as awful as it is to say, if all they've done their entire life is had the goal of being you know, a medical doctor, say. Well, they're gonna probably make it and they'll get to medical school and they'll get out and then they'll you know, graduate and somebody will call them doctor. And then I'm like, well, <clears throat> yeah. D- did you at any point along the way say, but what kind of person do I wanna be? What, what kind of thing do I think is worth my energy and time? What mm-hmm. do I think matters? And unless we've invited them to ask those questions, then success becomes checking boxes rather than a kind of undergirding life project. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about faithfulness, it's directly drawn from Kierkegaard. Faithfulness is the grounding and core passion of your life. And, you know, this can morph over our life. When I was 20, my passion and my, you know, goal of trying to be faithful was to learn and think and become a scholar and all. But notice that's not get my PhD, right? It's become someone for whom thinking well is activated daily. Mm-hmm. But what we learn when we start doing this in grad school is man, that's a life task. That's not something I do for seven years and then walk across the stage and done, right? You know, now like I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. Mm-hmm. Well it's not there's not going to be a Thursday in twenty twenty six where I'm like, done, finished, successful. <laughs> like next, it, it doesn't work that way. It's a thing that in, invites me daily to move forward on purpose because I'm anchored in that mattering. And so mm-hmm. that's what Kirger teaches me. He says, you know, that the Greeks understood faith was a task for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, we think faith happens, you know, at an instant when you say, oh, I believe X, sign mm. the line. Mm-hmm. Now you're good. You're going to heaven and you can get a job at any number of evangelical colleges. Right? <laughs> like, no, the whole goal is, are you daily, as he puts it, are you recognizing that existence is the moment of decision? So mm-hmm. every minute, every instant, every day, are you saying, here's what matters and here's the way the faithfulness of my life is going to play out?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: if we do that, I I think then we're more likely to be successful, but not be defined by our success or our failure. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think
2: for me, that is Kierkegaard in a nutshell. And it's a pretty compelling nutshell.
1: Yeah. Gordon Marino, the curator, uh, director of the library, the Hong Kierkegaard Library, says frequently, you know, I tell students, particularly incoming freshmen, not when I ask them about their goals, I don't just say, like, what do you want to know in four years? Or what do you want to have achieved in four years? Or what are your plans for after the four years? But think about who is the kind of person that you want to be? Yeah. Exactly um,
2: right.
1: Who do and, you want to be?
2: Well, and I tell my students a lot that the thing that sucks about that question, when they really get it, you know, when they, when they lock into it, they'll also recognize a very Aristotelian thing, which is, you are who you are becoming. Mm. So it, it, the, the number of college students with whom I engage daily, the number of them who kind of have this attitude, eh, I'll stop being a jerk later. Hmm. Or, I I won't drink so much when I get out of college because, come on, you know, then I'll be an adult, I'll have to figure it out. Like, no, if you're the guy who thinks that it's okay to do that now, you're just creating the habits that will then make you the 40-year-old still wearing the college jersey, still getting drunk more than you need to be, and still probably being defined by the misogyny, patriarchy, and general uh, racial bias that right now you're refusing to attend to, right? Hmm. like you are who you're becoming. Mm. Augustine was right. Our desire defines our identity. So mm. when we get that, uh, I think that Gordon's exactly right. We, we can begin to then become invested in, huh, so who am I wanting to become? What then would that look like for a 20-year-old? who wants to be that 50-year-old, mm-hmm. right? That's a way more interesting question than, mm-hmm. oh, what classes do I need to take in order to be a lawyer when I'm 35? Like, mm-hmm. well, that's a good question too, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. that's not the essential question.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so something I often, uh, we, we mentioned you know, uh, gospel music and Pentecostal stuff and LO Cool J, I actually think here what's really helpful is DMX, uh, which Mm. he's he's probably unhelpful in lots of cases. But in this case, (laughs) he's got this amazing song called Who We Be. Mm. And the chorus of it simply says, they don't know who we be. Mm. And I have given a talk to incoming students where I say, here's the thing. Why is it we ask each other, oh, what's your name? What do you do? Notice we're defining ourselves in terms of our actions relative to corporate production laws. Hmm. What if we instead said, hey, what's your name and who, who you be? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. you know, pardon to the, the yeah. grammar police, but what is it that actually defines the mm-hmm. task of becoming? Mm-hmm. Who are you trying to be? And I think that that's what I'm trying to teach my son every day. In fact, we have a little mantra on the way to school or or back when we went to school. Obviously, the world has cracked. But we would say this thing. I'd say, Atticus, who loves you more than anybody in the world? He'd say, you and mom. And then I would say, what is it that I care most for you? And he says, that I am kind. And I say, what do I not care at all about? And he'd say, that I am rich. Now, do I want him to care for himself and his family? And if capitalism remains the structure to be good at it and learn how to invest? Yes. Like we also talk about investment strategies. He's 10 years old. He's already got a stock account. Like Those are not stupid things to take seriously, but I refuse to allow them to ever give my son indication that he matters more than someone else because his stock account has done better. That's off the table. And so that's a who we be kind of question. And that's, Mm. I think, what colleges and universities, they are about the who we be work, Mm. not the what you do work. Mm. And yet that's, again, that STEM logic of objectivity that reduces us to robots in mechanistic ways. That is fundamentally the nationalistic logic that we are better than you because we produce more. Rather than recognizing the necessity of the human condition that invites us to say who we be is defined by our empathy, our loving kindness, not by our ability to say, oh, I'm the bully on the playground, or I can be more powerful than you, or hey, look at us, we're the best in the world because we've been testing, we have the most tests. Like, no, what, what hmm. you need to say is hmm. even though we've tested more people than any other country in the world, 95,000 people have died. Mm. And so we need to stop focusing on what we've done to try to justify our narrative of
3: greatness Mm -hmm.
2: and Mm -hmm. become humbled enough in that canonic way that I think Christ models. Let's actually rupture ourselves Mm. in order to open up the world as an invitation to ourselves and others so that we recognize the widow, the orphan, the stranger that Mm -hmm. might in fact be standing right in front of us that we're ignoring. Because we're on the cell phone with our windows rolled up, focused on where we've got to be in order to do the thing that we, in fact, might not even need to be doing.
0: I think that's a, a, a beautiful place for us to end. I always, I always say that I wish there was more kenosis in our politics, and I really yeah. like that point there. I think a lot of what you shared today, Aaron, has has been wonderful. I loved your response to Amber's questions about the, the drumming and the trout fishing. I didn't know where, <laughs> where you were going to go with that, but both those reflections were so beautiful, and and the way you tied them together, I thought was just wonderful. And so I'm really appreciative of this very reflective and thoughtful approach to the Christian life and, and, and to philosophy in general, I think there's a, a lot for, for us to reflect on you know especially during these very uncertain times with, with the, the whole pandemic. So very much appreciate your reflection and very appreciate uh, you joining us today
2: Thank you so much for having me. I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am for uh, you all and all of the many 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 others who are out there trying to provide content that invites hmm. our society to think better, to live more uh, conducively in, in social ways. I, I really, really, really think that you're doing a, a public service, not hmm. just an intellectual one.
3: Hmm. Well, thank well, you thanks. very much for
0: that. Yeah, cheers. It's very, very wonderful to have you on today. like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities
3: podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.